Welcome to the podcast. We're very excited to have Dr. Catherine Lewis on the show today. Dr. Lewis is a professor of genetic epidemiology and statistics at King's College London. And throughout her career, she's used data and statistical models to try to better understand disease risk, particularly in genetics. So I think her career is quite interesting in that she's covered quite a few different disease areas. So early in her career, she worked on some of the well-known breast cancer susceptibility genes, BRCA1 and BRCA2. Uh, And now she's a professor at King's College and she works on, let me see if I get this right, rheumatoid arthritis, stroke, ALS, which is also called motor neuron disease, schizophrenia, and depression. There are probably a couple that I've missed there, but (laughs) thanks so much for coming to the show. It's really great to have you on. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to uh, join you here today. So I know we we asked you to come on to talk specifically about some of your work in genetics and mental health. Um, but before we get on to that, I think it would be great to just hear how you got interested in genetics and uh, would you call it big data? Probably uh, probably today the term is overused, but certainly in your case, uh, it's it's very big data that you're working with. So how did you get involved in that in the first place? So my academic training was in maths and statistics. So I've got a very theoretical background um, to, to, to big data. Um, but during my training, I got rather fed up with the theory and I wanted to, to go out and do things. And I noticed, you know, if I went to statistical lectures, I was always much more interested in what they were doing with the data than the statistical methods that they were developing. And I was very lucky during my PhD at the University of Sheffield that I managed to start analyzing genetic data. And that was at that time not big data at all. It was much smaller data. It was very, very beginnings of the genetic revolution. But I got hooked. And and so I've been in in um, analyzing genetic data for the, the last 30 years. And it just gets more and more exciting. Right. And then the methods so the methods that you and your research group work on can be applied across all sorts of different disorders, right? Um, whether it's cancer, stroke, mental health. So how, how does that work exactly? And what, what kind of things are you working on today? You're exactly right that um, the genetic predisposition to most disorders is similar in that they're caused by uh, genetic variants with a very small effect on risk and identifying those genetic variants that might be associated with depression, which is my big interest at the moment, or with breast cancer or stroke or schizophrenia, the methodologies are the same. But because each of those variants has a very small effect on risk, you have to really do a deep dive into the phenotype, into the exact disorder that that you're looking at. And that's one of the challenges for me of working in mental health is that there's no there's no clear-cut diagnoses here. So, you know, if we think about two participants in our studies that have both been diagnosed with depression, their particular type of depression may be very different. They may endorse different symptoms of the disorder. And although the clinical diagnosis is the same, uh, the individual features and symptoms can differ quite substantially. So to do these genetic studies really well, we need 
not just a good understanding of genetics, but we need to work really closely with clinicians and with study participants themselves and make sure that we understand exactly what the disorders entail. Right. So on the on the topic of depression, you're part of a, a big group of scientists uh, in the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium. So how, can you tell me a little bit about how this project works and, and what kind of data you're collecting and, and where you're finding people to participate in these kind of projects? So the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium is one of the biggest studies that have ever existed in psychiatry. It's been going for the last uh, 12 years or so, led by Patrick Sullivan, who came together in 2007 with other insightful researchers who were really excited about the potential of genetic studies, in particular these genome-wide association studies that identify these variants that have a very small effect on risk. But they were very insightful because they realized that each individual researcher had very limited power, limited potential to uncover what the genetic susceptibility was, whether it was for depression or schizophrenia or PTSD. And they realized the only way that we were really going to make headway in uncovering the genetic predisposition to psychiatric disorders was if we worked together, if people collaborated internationally, shared data, shared ideas, shared analysis pathways. And then what you get is bigger than the sum of the parts. And you can really make progress in these disorders that are such a burden to to patients, to societies, to families. Right. And so I I think the project has nearly a million people uh, around the world, which is amazing. And so that's across depression, schizophrenia, PTSD. And it, your your recent work in depression was on about a quarter of a million people. Is that right? And so, what kind of data do you collect? I know you collect genetic data, but you were t- you were discussing the the more specific features of of the disorder. What other information do you collect from people? So we perform uh, case control studies. So we collect a series of people who have been diagnosed uh, with depression and we study their genetics and we compare that to the genetics of a set of um, what we call controls. They can be just random members of the population or people that we know have not been diagnosed with depression. And then for each genetic variance, we test millions of variants across the genome. We identify those where the frequency um, is higher in people with depression than our control group. And that tells us that that variant probably plays some role in people developing depression, it plays some role in the risk of the disorder. Um, And our most recent uh, paper was led by David Howard, who's now a research fellow in my my group, um, uh, used these quarter of a million people with depression that you've identified. And obviously, they come from all over the world. They come from um, 10 or 20 different studies. And, um, And we identified 102 different genetic variants that play a role in in susceptibility to depression. 
Um, but although that number sounds really impressive, and it is, it's wonderful to have these insights to depression, each of those variants individually has only a tiny effect on risk. And so even cumulatively, you know, we're not explaining very much of the genetic liability to depression. And we know that these studies are, are very much at the beginning of uncovering that genetic susceptibility. Right. And so, so how much, if it's possible to quantify it, how much does the the genetic predictors that you all and, and other researchers have found compare to uh, other risk factors. Um, what, what are the major risk factors for depression beyond genetics and, and, and how do they compare? Depression um, has a genetic component and we know from twin studies that uh, the genetics accounts for about 40% of risk for depression um, and that leaves 60% for the environment. Um, and that's actually in contrast to other psychiatric disorders, so schizophrenia and bipolar, it's more like 70 to 80% of the variance that's genetic and leaving a much smaller part for, for the environment. Um, and we, we use this convenient term environment, but obviously that captures all sorts of non-genetic uh, factors. In depression, that's mostly about stress. Um, yeah. And it can be um, an individual stressful life event like a bereavement or divorce or someone losing their job, all those increased risk of depression. Or it can be something um, like childhood maltreatment and, and um, uh, so childhood abuse, childhood adversity in all its forms is one of the major risk factors for, for depression um, uh, that leads people to um, uh, puts people at increased risk for developing depression, both from adolescence um, onwards. Right. And, and I guess, I don't know if your research uh, shows this or, or how, how difficult this is to do, but is there some relationship? D does the genetics mean that some people may respond differently to stress? Or is that, is that what we think is going on or, or is it still hard to know? That's a really good question. And obviously, it's crucial to know, you know, given we know that both stress and genetics play a role, how do those come together? And we really don't have a good answer for that yet. Uh, from the studies that we've done to date, it seems that they just combine together. Um, and so a combination of having a sufficient level of both genetics and, and environmental risk factors together would put you over a threshold in some way that would probably lead you to develop um, depression. One of the things people talk about quite a lot is whether there are gene environment interactions. Um, and I think people don't always understand what an interaction means, that it's not just a combining of two things. It's saying that if you have a specific combination of an environmental risk factor and a specific genetic variant or combination of variants, that together they put you at much higher risk. Um, and currently, there's no evidence that that exists within depression. Of course, as I've said, we're very much at the beginning of unpacking the genetic contribution. So it's not to say that they don't exist, but there's no strong evidence for them at the moment. Right. And, and as you were saying before, the 
defining what depression is, for example, in a particular individual can can be really challenging as well. Does your work say anything about different subtypes of depression? Or I think you've done some recent work on bipolar as well. Is that right? And what do those what do those subtypes tell us? So perhaps the easiest way to think about that is from the different studies that we've had. We talked about our a quarter of a million depression cases that are in our genetic studies at the moment. And they come from a whole variety of studies. So some of them come from clinically ascertained patients who have perhaps had severe depression that's had a major impact on their life. They've had recurrent episodes year after year. Uh, And so some of our studies have recruited those patients. Other studies, for example, we work with 23andMe, a direct-to-consumer online uh, company, and the information that they have from their participants is a much lighter touch phenotyping. They just know that their participants have said yes or no to being diagnosed with depression by a doctor. And so there's a huge range of different types of depression, severity, um, different diagnoses that go in there. Um, And we're not yet at the stage where we can say that specific variants contribute to severe depression and others to more moderate depression. Um, and, And obviously, there's a lot of work going on in that area. One of the problems we have is that each of these variants only have a very tiny effect. And so we need the huge sample sizes to be able to um, to test those variants and really test what's going on properly. So work in progress is probably the best way to, to put that. Right. You you mentioned 23andMe and, and there, I think on one of our previous shows, we had um, Craig from DNA Testing Choice and he told me there's now 300 different direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies. Obviously, 23andMe, one of the first and one of the biggest. Do you have um, do you have an impression on how useful that data is for someone who who has depression? For example, is a is a test like that today likely to give them a lot of interesting or meaningful information about their own risk factors? Or or and if not, is that something that you see as likely or possible in the future? Currently, for depression, there is no value at all in the, in a genetic test. And I want to make that very clear. Um, I, and I can explain a little bit more about why that is so. Um, and it comes back to numbers again, that we've identified these 102 variants for depression. And that sounds like a very impressive number. But actually, those variants only account for of the risk of depression. And so that means we know about that 2% of our genetic risk, but that leaves 98% that we don't know about. And that will include the environment, it'll include our unknown genetics, it'll include a bit of random chance. um, But that 98% of unknown information is always going to swamp that 2% of known information. And until that balance changes, there's really no utility at all in a genetic test for depression. Right. So maybe maybe they should, we should focus on the research side for the time being. Right. Yeah. 
Uh, so on the research side, I, I should say that the genetics is really useful. And, and what we've been doing is to combine these variants into polygenic risk scores, which takes these millions of variants across the genome and collapses them into one number for every member of our study that accounts for their genetic liability to depression. And as we've said, that number on its own doesn't tell anyone very much at all because it's only the 2% uh, uh, with the 98% of noise. But even though it's not useful at an individual level, when you do it within the context of groups of people, it is informative. So, for example, we can show that in our uh, cases with depression, those that have recurrent depression tend to have higher polygenic risk scores than those that have a single episode of depression. Those that um, are have an onset of depression earlier in life, have higher scores. They have a heavier genetic predisposition than those that are onset later in life. And so that's very reassuring that even though we're not at the stage that we can use polygenic risk scores to do individual level prediction, they are capturing useful information that, that suggests that we, we just need more. We need to, to continue the research so in a, in a in a country like the UK do you think it makes good economic sense for the national health service for instance to start looking into something like this as a as a tool to identify maybe it's the 1% of people that are at very high risk based on this genetic score that you mentioned or or do you think it's it's still premature for that I'm really excited about the potential of polygenic risk scores uh, and that they will move from the research environment where they currently are into a clinical setting. Uh, for mental health disorders, we're clearly not there yet, as, I, as I've discussed. But I think for coronary artery disease, for breast cancer, you know, we're much closer uh, to that. And, and I would really like to see the day where our genetic risk scores, our genotype information forms part of our clinical record um, and that that is used throughout our life wherever it is useful. Um, and I think, but the key bit there is, where is it useful? And I think we have a lot more research to do to make sure that these scores are not just, you know, a piece of information, but that, the, that they have a value, that we can use them um, to uh, identify people at high risk and use that information for better screening or preventative therapy. Uh, so the test on its own really doesn't have much value. It's what you do with that result and the potential for its impact on healthcare. Right. And I, I think one of the challenges I've always found with some of the direct-to-consumer testing is, is even if you do fall in that very high-risk group, for example, it's often not clear what to do next. I know uh, I've spoken to a few GPs, um, general practitioners here in the UK, and if people bring in a, a report from one of the direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies, there's not often much they can do with that information. So it, it seems like we probably have a lot of work to do in terms of thinking about the next steps after you get one of these scores. A, is it, like you say, is it useful in the first place? And B, what do we do after we've gotten the test? Mm -hmm. But even before we start thinking about what we do with the test, I think we've got a lot of work to do to communicate 
this style of genetic information to the general public. I mean, when I talk to people, um, their understanding of genetic predisposition is still as a yes, no, an on off switch. You have the gene or you don't. Um, and that's a really good model for our rare Mendelian single gene disorders like Huntington's disease or cystic fibrosis. But that's not where genetics is going to have the most value. You know, we really want to be able to use this for heart disease, for uh, breast cancer, for colon cancer, for mental health disorders. And those are not yes, no genetic predispositions. They are a genetic liability where genetics is a continuous measure. It's a number on a scale like height or blood pressure. And I think we have to do a lot of um, communication to help people understand that idea, to think about genetics from this continuous uh framework and not this yes no present absent single gene perspective yeah i think that's a very good point have you seen any uh, any good examples of this in action um any in, whether it's in mental health or any other condition are, are there any approaches to this kind of communication or or education around this that you think are likely to work i know i know communicating risk in general is is really hard to, for anyone to wrap their head around, right? Because we, we tend to think in absolutes. So when I talk to my genetics colleagues here, the clinical consultants who spend their day communicating genetics um, to, to their patients, you know, have very good communication tools. But those are currently mostly about yes, no genetic disorders. And I think we really have to engage the clinical community to help us build on what they currently do and help move that over to a polygenic type environment. Um, uh, and it's, you know, whatever direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies do, and I think some of them have very good communication tools in general, we have to make sure that that happens within the clinical environment as well. Right. And I've also heard a, a few people suggest that um, that genetic counselors are a big piece of this puzzle as well. And I know in, in most countries, there's a, there's a shortage of genetic counselors, but there's a, still today no substitute for a real human explaining what the test means and what it doesn't mean, um, because these things can be really tricky to communicate on paper or, or online sometimes, I think. And, and there's probably a, a place for a hybrid model where you do as much education as you can through videos and other things, but, but also give people an opportunity to talk to a real person, right. And, and ask the, the endless amount of questions that you could ask. Absolutely right. And I think there's also a lot of research to do in this area. We don't know what the best way to communicate with people is. Um, uh, and we should be thinking about how to do that um, uh, as well as what we're doing. Right. Yeah, I know there's some there's some very interesting work uh, that I've seen around cardiovascular disease where they return genetic test results to participants. But there seems to be conflicting reports. Some people say that when someone receives a result that says you're likely to uh, you, you're at high risk of a heart attack or cardiovascular disease, some groups see a change in behavior, but some um, people uh, after two or three weeks, it's out of their mind, and and it's probably down to some of the details around how the information is delivered and, and what the follow-up is like. Mm -hmm. 
and and to give another scenario, you know, we've been um, doing public health information to encourage people to give up smoking for decades. And it's taken us a long time to get to the methods, the ideas, the, the tools that work there. We have to do the same in genetics. Right. So it's, uh, I guess we're in for, we're in for uh, the long run here, aren't we? Just wanted to ask one final question about uh, looking forward, your research. What are you working on right now that you're most excited about and what's next? The project that I'm most excited about at the moment is, is within depression, but it looks at it from a slightly different perspective. And it looks at response to treatment. So uh, many people with depression will be prescribed antidepressants, but only a third of people respond to the first antidepressant that they're given. Um, and it can take six to eight weeks to figure out that this antidepressant isn't working and move them on to a different one. That's a terrible burden for the patient uh, and, for, and for healthcare as well. And what I what we are working on at the moment, and this is another project in the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium with Andrew McIntosh in Edinburgh and Oliver Payne, who's my postdoc, we're trying to uncover the genetic variants that, not that give you a risk of depression, but that control whether or not you will respond to an antidepressant. Because if we could identify that at baseline, you know, we might know what's the best thing to prescribe. We might be able to direct people to psychological therapy rather than pharmacological therapy if that's what their genetics uh, shows. And it's a really interesting model because we talked a bit about um, risk of disease and how important it is to communicate that and not to use it when the information is just too low as it is in right. depression at the moment. But when you're talking about treatment, it's slightly different because we are going to treat patients and it's just about which treatment might be slightly better than the other. And so I think using genetics within healthcare, not for risk prediction, but for treatment right. prediction, could have a really major potential for patients and for the healthcare community. And that's not something we're focusing on the moment. We're identifying variants for risk of disease. Uh, and it, I think we're going to move more and more to thinking, well, what does it tell us about the disorder itself and how we treat that? Right. That sounds wonderful. So we're moving from a world, hopefully, uh, where we don't know which drugs work on which people and, and it's a lot of trial and error to everybody talks about the idea of precision medicine and of course it's going to take a long time to get to this ideal of one personalized drug for one person but we've got to start making steps in that direction don't we Exactly. And personalized medicine is, is a wonderful goal that we're all aiming for. But even just a slightly better medicine than I have at the moment would be a good starting point. People want to follow your work. I know you're on Twitter at Catherine Lewis. Is that right? C-A-R-Y-N Lewis. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much. Maybe we'll have another conversation once you've got some exciting new, would you call it pharmacogenomics? Is that what you call that? Yeah. Pharmacogenomics study. I'd be delighted. Wonderful. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much. 